Hello and welcome to A New and Ancient Story. This is a podcast, a series of conversations, interviews, and occasionally speeches dedicated to the transformation of self and society. The basic idea is that we are moving from a story of separation to a new story, new for the dominant culture at least, of interbeing. What that means will become apparent as you listen to this series. We explore things like technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education. I mean, pretty much everything that is undergoing a transition today as our old story nears collapse. If you want to engage these ideas more deeply, you can come to our website, charleseisenstein.net. I think we could do an easy hour on healing, you know, and what that's about, and da 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 da. And I just say that because we were kidding about, well, Ariel and I were kidding about Charles and Oprah. And I, years ago, thought before Oprah was around, this is like every good idea is had in more places than one. But what I wanted to do when I grew up was to be a talk show host. And I wanted to have different healers on, like, I wanted a Western medical surgeon, I wanted a shaman, I wanted a, you know, da, 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 and all to take some serious illness and have them speak to how they would respond to it. And that for me, if that show had been done or was done, my intention was to give the viewer the experience that any one of those paths would work. And that what was important was the choosing mm -hmm. and the commitment and the surrender, the engagement in the path. And I felt that would be a really quick way to do it, like in an hour. Because so many people, uh, just like you talk beautifully about, and Tamara and others do, are living under this cultural story of what we have to do when we become sick or you know for me when I had this tumor I was told I had lost some of my eyesight and that every day I didn't have surgery I was risking losing all of my eyesight and the pressure of that you know and in a way it wasn't anything wrong the doctor was saying in his world that was true um, but the the power the passion I have for empowering people to make their own choices in life and to make them good whatever they are um, is why I want to talk with Charles and Oprah today. But wouldn't that make a good little show? Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's... They're already... They're already like yes. all kinds of... Yes. In the wilds of the internet, yeah. Right. So I don't have to do that one. You just wait long enough and they're all done, you know. I held a retreat at Esalen a while, not too long ago. And we had a bowl of water in the middle of the circle the whole time. And at the beginning, I addressed the water and acknowledging, I acknowledged the voice in my head that said, this is silly, this is just water, can't hear anything I'm saying, I'm putting on a performance, etc., etc. So I confessed that to the water and said, thank you for listening anyway, even if it sometimes sounds that I don't mean it. And I explained that we were going to be doing a 
a lot of processes over the next few days, et cetera, et cetera. And that after we did that, then we would pour the water back into the ocean. Into the, there's a stream there that goes right into the ocean so that the ocean can kind of know what's going on in the world here. And that, that kind of action, the, the worldview that I grew up in basically said that that is kind of a ritual, that its effect on the world is just in our minds. It's just symbolic. But of course, the water isn't, quote, really listening. Nothing's really happening. It's just, you know, a psychological device or a dramatic device. Other cultures, older cultures especially, disagree with that viewpoint. And they think that the water actually does listen and that it actually, the ocean actually will get information and that this needs to be taken seriously. And my birth religion, which is scientific rationalism or atheism, it still lives inside me. And there's part of me that's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, it's not real. And that doesn't mean that I don't believe that this water hears our voices right now and is being impacted by it. Like, I believe that, not just on an intellectual level, because I've had enough immersion in that way of thinking and being that it's penetrated a bit beyond the intellectual. But there's also still that part of me that thinks, okay, that's all fine for, you know, new age workshops. But when we're actually talking about climate change or you know, water security for the, the thirsty peoples of the Sahel or some other real issue, then we have to dispense with that airy fairy, the water is alive nonsense and talk about cubic feet of water resource and the hydrological cycle and stuff like that. And I'm not saying that those should not be part of the conversation, but I think that when those are the only part of the conversation, then we're really in the same mindset that has generated the crisis to begin with, like valuing it only for what we can measure about it, what we can use it for, how it can be service in service to us. That's why it's called a resource, like for us. And yeah, I guess one reason that I feel such a kinship and alliance with, with Gigi is that I just can sense that she's coming from the same place of really, like maybe you have that voice too, that this is all silly, but, but, and I have it too, but like as far as where you act from, it's not from that voice, mm -hmm. from what I see. It's great to hear you speak of it. You know, for me, a couple of things come up in listening to you. One is that my t-shirt says yes and you know and my life is about thinking like a circle and it's not either or it's like i value the science as far as it reveals and gets and i value deeply people that are protesting and stopping certain things that are really not meant to be happening and equally i value um, the ritual the prayer the deep listening the um, consideration of the ancient truth that water does hear, listen, and retain, and release, and do all of the things that a living being does. So um, I feel the world of yes and, 
is the world of circle and that the either or mindset wrong right us them um, is really one of the root causes of our disconnection and our suffering so i accept those different voices in myself you know mm -hmm. and i for years i mean i i worked in australia in different places and i was the only woman in a lot of situations and I can say that learning how to banter was essential. It's the only way I survived. And I was the queen of banter. And I could, you know, and, and then I, I got that, you know, it was actually hurting me because I was not finding the room to express that sincere heart voice. And I just went cold turkey on banter. I, I, I saw my addiction to it as a way to exist with the guys. And that was a strong time because I, I risked being boring. I risked being too serious. I risked being new age. I mean, it wasn't even the new age yet, but <laughs> I risked being Oh, one of those California people, and I was from the East Coast, you know. I mean, when I first came to California, I thought workshops and hot tubs and all that stuff. Oh, my God. And then, like, I love the other. You know, turn into it. Anytime that I have that aversion, I know there's medicine there. And I know there's part of me there. And, and I want mm -hmm. to embrace it. And um, it's real. You know, it comes from experience. It doesn't come from learning that it's a good thing to do in a workshop. I mean, I appreciate yeah. that too. But it really comes from my living the truth of my life. So, um, yes and. Yeah, yes and. So, I, yeah, I love it when you're like, you know, and we can, you know, it's like in the days of really strong feminism, which are returning. <laughs> but, you know, I would not have certain conversations with men that I would with women. You know, I would critique the women's movement, and I mm -hmm. was deeply a part of it. So the other part of my T-shirt is it depends when to offer that voice of critique or of questioning or of... And what I have found is that the ancient voices of wisdom of living like a circle in that consciousness are so needed in our world today that I will give my life to that. And I have given my life to that. And probably once everybody gets onto that, you know, I'll, I'll move to the hierarchy or, you know, it's like when I first made my relationship or was blessed with my relationship with dolphins, they weren't in the new age world they they were just people thought they were fish but then once everybody really got into them and what i said okay okay I, i'm going to give my attention to lizards now because you know it's a prayer of balance and it's a prayer of watering the seeds back to water of watering the seeds that need to be watered for wholeness in myself and in the people i'm with and in the place on this. So what voice comes through us? And sometimes the 
the savage witness comes. Mm-hmm. But still, the voice that's heartful and truly um, simple, you know, there's still not a lot of room for that voice in our modern culture. So I'll say a couple of things just personally. Um, I have partnered all my life with people. The only things I've written, really, I've written in partnership, like that box over there. We took seven years, four of us, to create the books inside that box. And um, I really, I don't know if I believe in anything, but I so deeply value the the wisdom, the love that comes out of community. And one plus one is that's the beginning, and then three, and four, and then five. And so for me, um, I mean, I could spend all day on this question because meeting Charles is like, um, I don't read that often, but when I live like, oh, oh, it's that person I'm supposed to, I have something to do with, or it's that book I'm supposed to read, and, and you pick it up or you listen I listen to Charles and I hear him say something that I have felt for years and he says it more clearly and more beautifully than I could say it. I am, that's joy for me. So that's part of it. And, and then when we have been together and Charles is, you know, engaged or talking or we got to do a few, um, group programs together, I actually find that I have something to say. And I'm really happy a lot of times to sit and say nothing. I've done that a lot in my life. And then when, you know, I'm in a situation with the prayer of I'll speak if I really feel it serves. And after Charles speaks, I, oh, I have something come through me. That's maybe a third. That's like connecting with and being in relationship with someone that's in service to that. And I feel that you're similar. I feel like you don't, you don't blah, 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 blah. You, you listen. It's not just about speaking or being a talking head. You listen. And then what comes through you really touches people and opens and awakens a field. And I respect and value that. And so if when we're together, more of that can happen because, you know, I'm very aware in my life of working with groups of people like I partner with Jack Zimmerman for years. And he's a patriarch, a beautiful elder. And Jack will say something and you just watch the people in the room and who's lit up and who's... And then there's some people in the room that are like, no, they're not like receiving. And so then I'll speak. And, and maybe those people will receive something. And that's why I never wrote a book alone in part, because I'm just so sensitive to that. And so I love that, like, when you and I are together, maybe, maybe it's more whole. Yeah. I mean, I very rarely partner with anybody. It's usually, Usually partnering with somebody, collaborating with somebody at an event or somebody or something, it's like 
I'm just like diluting what I'm bringing and okay, compromising and okay, now I better, you know, let you have your turn and that kind of thing. But it's different with Gigi and also with Orland where there's similar to what you were saying, like, like Gigi might say something that, that it's like brings us both through um, a door into a new room where I have something new to say that I wouldn't have been able to say from the room that I'd already been in. So in, in this kind of, and it's because it's all, it's because of that listening, because we're both in service to something that is beyond our own conception and beyond what like I could do myself. So, so it's like going through a doorway and here's like an, an entire new field or something that I can speak into and speak from. And then that opens maybe another doorway and then Gigi can speak from that. So the reason that I like to collaborate with Gigi is because more is possible. It's not a dilution or a compromise, but new things are possible that when we can both be in service to that. And so that's the intention. And it's rare these days, I find, to collaborate with somebody who's not like, okay, well, let me get my piece in, mm. where it's a kind of a contention. And in panels like that, I tend to be silent because whatever I say, if it's in the spirit of contention, it's going to be carrying the, the overtone or the meta message of contention. And that's, I don't know, I'm not saying contention is a bad thing, but I think we have more than enough of it at this time in the world. Actually, it's not, that's not even the real reason I don't do it. It's just that um, it's not fun for me. It's not enjoyable. Maybe uh, there might be, I'm not even saying this is a good thing. There might be psychopathological reasons why I shy away from confrontation and stuff like that. But, you know, going up there with other guys and elbowing and the panel, you know, and trying to assert intellectual dominance and stake out my territory and say my thing, like, just not fun for me. I like, I like doing it this way better. I would even say, given how sensitive you are, I experience you to be that it hurts. It hurts. And I'll say in my own experience, you know, I was a public speaker when I was 18 years old. I was like leading the charge in the strike against Vietnam War. And I was a political science person. I worked in the Senate in the summers. I ended up the only woman in my graduate school in international relations. And after, like, I would say sort of when I started having my voice, so let's say from 16 to 26, those 10 years, the amount of energy that I had to use mm. to get space to say something, by the time I got the space, I didn't have the emptiness to access mm -hmm. what I really wanted to say. And that's when I stopped. I just stopped talking for a year unless someone asked me a question or it was essential. And that was my gateway into counsel as a practice because I just, I saw that, you know, with people that are really opening to have something come through that serves, they're never actually going to have much of a space unless in, in those days there was a practice and mm -hmm. counsel provided that practice. 
And so now, having lived that practice and offered it for 35 years, you know, for me to be with you and to be with Orland and to be with people that I don't need a listening piece or a talking piece, you know, because we won't be doing that to each other, talking over. And then to go to a place where actually I've been teasing people lately, like today, saying, well, now we're in the new practice of counsel, which is we can interrupt each yeah. other anytime. And that's because there is that total There's respect trust. and trust. Right, like if Gigi, if Gigi, if I'm like on a roll and Gigi interrupts <laughs> me, I'd be like, wow, she must have something that's so alive and so urgent and so beautiful that that because I totally trust that she's in service to what I'm in service to, that she would interrupt. Um, so, wow, great. Like, I'm, I'd be excited. If I'm required to answer the question of what I'm in service to, I might say that I'm in service to the emerging mythology, the next mythology on this planet that has ancient roots and has been, even in our own culture, existing like a recessive gene, but now ready to flower the story of interbeing, perhaps you could call it. That's the answer I might give. But really, even that answer is coming in some part from the programming and the mentality and the culture that I grew up in. My, so I'm, I'm wary of the limitations of my own articulation of it. And, and that doesn't mean I won't try. It doesn't mean I won't use words that, that come to me. But also, like, what I'm in service to and what I sense that, that Gigi is also in service to because we have a very strong feeling of alliance is much bigger than anything that I could confine within my concepts. So maybe trying to articulate it to answer that question is part of the courtship of this being that wants to be born, that we're in service to. But it's certainly not the entirety. It's just a step in getting to know it. It's great to hear. Yeah, I mean, for you as a wordsmith to say you don't want to put words around it, I would definitely not consider myself a wordsmith. So I'm even more hesitant. Like, I feel like my gift in life has been to live my knowings. So I, I can't even describe something maybe until after. Mm -hmm. I've done it, you know, like walking water pilgrimage. You know, I refuse to say I was the leader of that pilgrimage, and I'm so glad I didn't because my passion became the self-responsibility and the empowerment and working with Kate to become really the lead of, of pilgrimages. And now I can look back and say, oh, well, I kind of co-founded Walking Water. But I wouldn't have said that, you know, four years ago. And it's same when people come and do ceremony in the desert and they, they call it a quest or they call it this and that. And I say, why don't, why don't we enter? Why don't we go through this? And it's like birthing a baby. Name it afterwards, mm -hmm. after you, you, you realize, you know, and, um, Yep. Same thing with when people get sick. You know, there's this idea that if you could only uncover the, the 
psychological reason, the, the childhood trauma, to, if you can make sense of it, then you'll get better. But I think often people jump too quickly to the sense-making and escape the actual medicine of the experience. And I guess maybe this does kind of touch into water because, I mean, if anything defies our attempts to control it, I mean, you know, water is the essence of a mess. It's the essence of dissolving. Everything dissolves in water. Everything comes apart. So let me let me say more about being in service to and, and what you just shared, which is everything comes apart in water and also everything comes together in water. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I've always said, uh, I'm at home in the water. And I spent a lot of time with water birth. And it was the first time where I really related to birthing because I had learned a lot about the trauma of what happens in birth and abrupt entry into our world and then being with water babies and and being with the transition of the womb into the world just totally made sense. Mm -hmm. And so I started spending a lot of time in the water. There I found that's where Beyond Boundaries as a name came Mm. to me because the whole, you know, kind of uh, that we have to go and stand on the earth and walk around and put up fences and all of that as white settlers, that doesn't happen in the water. And so I kept following that until, you know, I ran into dolphins and I could go down that trail. But today to say that I, I spent a lot of time with this beautiful man out of Australia who shared, again, a myth, the legend of the golden dolphin, mm-hmm. and just totally related deeply to what I couldn't name, but what I was in service to. And um, we just met each other, and that was it. You know, I, I, I became in service to sharing the legend, mm-hmm. because that was what best expressed love, truth, Beyond Boundaries, so many fem- feminine, the mm-hmm. oceanic consciousness, the thinking and the realization that we're a water planet, and all of these kinds of things. And that was 35 years ago. But I still, like when you say we're, we're in service to a, a mythos, you know, we're in service to a story that is wanting wanting to live it's like a baby mm-hmm. and i i love hearing you say that and that's why you know my work changes because um you know we shared that legend and peter never sold that legend he would say at the end people were blown away when they heard it their hearts just opened and um tracing the human dolphin connection and and he would say don't believe any of it it's a space fable but follow the sign of the dolphins listen to their call and just see if your life isn't more yeah interesting yeah this this thing of peter saying don't believe any of it brings me back to the uh idea of of yes and and ambivalence. I'm reading 
uh, Stephen Jenkinson's new book with the intention of writing a forward to it. And there's one part where he talks about ambivalence and what the word really means. You know, today it kind of means indecision or, or um, having two minds. But really, ambi originally meant more of around. And valence is a word used in physics mostly now, but, but it comes from the same root as valor. So the original meaning, it has to do with a power that can take in multiple perspectives, multiple that could encompass paradox, that doesn't have to decide, okay, this one's right and that one's wrong. And that goes, it runs contrary to the habits that are inculcated in school, for example, where the goal is to produce the right answer as quickly as possible and move on to the next right answer to produce the correct answer. And there is a right one and a wrong one. And that reward system, the reward and punishment system that, that is used in school, we, we deeply internalize that. And we become uncomfortable with things that don't have an answer. And that plays into a larger cultural um, or even civilizational impulses to control something, to identify the one, the one answer, the certainty. You know, we, our, our, our whole technological system is based on certainty on variables that can be controlled and isolated and tested, uh, experiments that can be replicated. You get the same result every time you do it, and you can build microchips that way. You can build bridges that way. You can do things through the technologies of control that are magnificent. It's not a bad thing, but, what, but what's happened is that we've allowed that way of, that particular skill set and that particular way of thinking to usurp the place of all kinds of other ways of thinking and ways of being and become uncomfortable with anything else, uncomfortable with a situation where we're not in control, where we let go, where we trust a larger process that's not planned out. So yeah, on the, on the kind of metaphysical level, this idea that there's one reality and let's see what's really true. What's actually true? I mean, these words, what does actually mean? What's factually true? That is really limiting. And it, it prevents us from receiving, like the, the legend of the golden dolphin, whether or not you establish its factual veracity. And was there really a human dolphin? Whatever, I don't even know what the legend is. <laughs> but but like that... I mean, it's like a fairy tale, you know, like if suppose you read The Princess and the Pea and you're like, well, there were never really a princess couldn't really feel a pea under 20 mattresses. And this never really happened. And medieval life wasn't like this. Like, who cares? That's the, the story is true. It's about the princess, like the divine aspect of a woman being so sensitive to a wrongness that no matter how many layers of comfort and insulation there are between her and that that little nugget of like this little thing that's bothering me, you know, and I'm not gonna, I can't even sleep. I'm restless because of that. I'm bruised because of that. Like that kind of, like that's what this, what the story is conveying. That is a deep truth. Like, so to, to create a myth, this is not something like whoever wrote, like there's not like somebody sat down to write the princess and the pea and worked out all these metaphors and constructed it consciously like that it's just like oh here's what should happen next so to to construct a myth it's not you can't do it actually 
it's something that, that can be done through you if you listen carefully enough. So I think today there is a myth, and this is a new myth, a new myth. In the existing myth, which is called objective reality, that can be interrogated through experiment and analysis. In that myth, then the word myth itself becomes a term of disparagement. But I'm talking about the myth, the truth, like a myth that, that is a story that carries truth for a time. The myth that wants to be born, that we're in service to, can only be, it's not like we're making it up. It is already there and we're listening for it. We're listening and listening and listening for it. And when we listen long enough, where we become perhaps gifted with some words that can help bring it into the consensus world, into the human world. And in this myth, the, the, the new and ancient myth that wants to be born, water is a very different thing than it was in the old myth. In the old myth, it was a generic fluid it was a bunch of dihydrogen oxide that had measurable properties that you could control and predict. Now, that was actually kind of a delusion. It never, I mean, there are all kinds of anomalous properties of water that really cannot be explained reductionistically like that. And that's a whole other story. But, but you know, we, we, we knew what water was. Right now, the things that we thought we knew are coming into doubt across the board, scientifically, politically, ecologically, um, in every every way. And that, and as 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 they dissolve, then the other ones come into, under question too. And so, maybe we're not so sure we actually know what water is. And so we're becoming open. And what by we I mean like, you know, not just a few new age people, but just generally in the culture, there's more and more openness to different ways of seeing water that live in a different mythos. And in that mythos, it's not a generic fluid, it's a living being or a sacred being. And what can we learn? Like you can learn some things about it with microscopes and scientific instruments, and you can learn other things about it by seeing it as a sacred being, like we've barely begun to explore that as a culture. What could we learn about water by seeing it that way? What kind of relationship could be born when we ask, what does the water want? It's not just a resource anymore, it's a being. And what are we meant to do in partnership? What are we meant to give? What are we meant to receive? What wants to happen through the relationship? Like these are questions that would not occur to somebody in the old mythology. They would be nonsense. And they would occur to someone in the oldest of mythologies. So yeah. it's also beautiful as one as invoking a new story to really, for me, always look at the most ancient old stories that have been carried forward and survived genocide. Um, and so again, my blessed life of knowing and meeting indigenous people that this is just everyday nature to them and that's what i've been in service to you know we can have a long list but one of the primary ones is in service to nature is teacher 
and guide and the way that a lot of our civilization and culture fell away from that and adapted um, and made themselves comfortable. It's in some, I, I love my, my co-guide on walking water, Alan Baycock, when I said, Alan, what do you, what do you think's in the way of us waking up to water in all of its gifts? And, and he said comfort. And I thought that was such a perfect answer and really um, see that um, as, as a, asking people to go back to their earliest connections with water, there's one story after another of interbeing and of exchange and of uh, life. Water is life. And then how in modern Western, particularly culture, that got cut and broken. So there's new story and there's reclaiming and supporting the oldest of stories. And water as sacred and water as life as people woke up who listened and saw and even went to Standing Rock this year. Um, that is like, thank you you know, something is happening that's needed to happen. And back to the legend of the dolphin, you know, the, the messages were similar, but Peter had woven them in a different way. Um, and any time that we can support each other to uh, live in closer connection with the natural world, you don't have to live in the bush, there are lots of ways. Even in the inner city, it might be a stronger connection because one flower in the inner city stands out or one tree, like in the bush, it doesn't. So part of my passion is really um, having people in the modern world move out of their comfort zones and realize that we belong and that we belong and are part of nature. I'm always happy when, even if I begin a speech by saying, this is not a new story, it's an ancient story, but it's new for the dominant culture. Usually someone will call me out and say, Charles, you're saying it's a new story, but it's not new. Because, which is a good thing, because people are now so, like, getting really um, like sensitive to the fact that, yeah, this isn't about, you know, the next great thing that, that our culture is going to bring to the world. You know, it's really coming to the failure of our stories because our story and the whole technology built on it was supposed to bring technological paradise. You know, we were supposed to have engineered all our problems out of existence by now. And instead it's brought the opposite. You, you, you look around society and I mean, one in four women is on, on psychiatric medication. Like one in three children is abused. One in six people goes hungry sometime during the year in America. Like this, the suicide rate, I mean, just, just like you can't anymore say that, that the paradise is just around the corner. Like we, you could in the seventies, you know, when robots, servants, space stations, and like, wow, you know, we're going to have it all really soon. And the end of all disease, like we, we you can't say that, say that anymore. And, and, so I, I, I think it's, so what's happening is it's not like, yeah, what's the next great thing, the new story that we're going to put out there, but it's more of a, 
of a, shit, it's not working. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Maybe they know what to do. And I have to say, thank you for bringing that again. One of the connections I have with you is that you are comfortable cultivating and living in the unknown, and you know a lot. And that's one of my sort of criteria for who I can work with. Uh, you know, like, if you're not comfortable living in the unknown, then let's, let's get there. Because once that doorway is opened and that pressure for particularly men in our world for so long to know, yeah. that is the, wow, that is a shut door. And so it's great to hear you bring that. <laughs> I, I want to say a little bit more about cultivating a relationship and living in the unknown. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I really related when I learned uh, spending time with Aboriginal people of uh, the power of songline, mm -hmm. and that unless um, one is listening deeply uh, to the story of the land, they we will not know our own story. We will not know where to be. But if we activate that listening, you know, we'll meet the right person at the right tree. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I have watered that seed of knowledge in my life. It's not that I'm a special person. It's just that I heard that and I really chose to water that seed. And we know water gives life. And so you give attention and then in the modern world, I mean, one of my prayers would be, what would it be if more and more people lived songline? Mm -hmm. And we really listened to where we were to be. And we really knew and lived the truth of that the fact that we're here today is influencing what we're able to say to each other. And we didn't just get on airplanes and go to places because we were invited to a cool conference, that we were engaged at that level. That is part of keeping for me the, the like you were saying, reciprocity. The, you, you sing a song to a rock, and the rock will give you something in return. Mm -hmm. So how, I mean, I'm not going to see all this probably in my lifetime, just like the technology is not going to solve everything. But I know that that's the way I want to live, that I'm here to live that way. And as many other people that are interested and want to live that way, I am going to do everything I can to support. It's like um, we began talking about health. For me, it's about um, feeding the healthy cells, so watering the seeds. Uh, you know, I live and work in the desert. The stories that are true, that a seed can lie out there for years. Mm -hmm and then some water can come along. So I feel these seeds of connection with place and connection with water and all the elements, it's, they're just waiting. Yeah. I've wanted to make new maps. You know, um, I have a book of good ideas, so hopefully someone else will do this. But I, I want... You know, we often see all the traffic maps and where all the wars are. I want to see maps of, like, Paul Hawkins. Um, where are all the groups and communities and organizations that are really 
with intention asking how to be part of the healing in this world. I want to see those. I want to see pilgrimages, the ancient pilgrimage routes, and then new pilgrimages that are happening where people are like going with these unknowns in their hearts and minds and, and surrendering to that. I want to see um, rites of passage for every young person on this planet so that um, every, whether they're African American, Native American, or atheist pagan, that they have um, a ceremonial welcoming into what it is to be an adult in this world. And even if they're not living in a totally connected community and village, for at least a few days, they have an experience of that. Because I, I don't know what the new systems will look like. I can, though, create like experiences, co-create or be part of a field that um, we can be in. And then when we've had an experience of it, it's in our body. Mm -hmm. And it will come back to us like a chant. You know, when people hear a good song, they're all going, oh, can you give me those words and can I write it down? And I say, just sing it a few times and let it be in your body. And it will come back to you when you need it. Instead of that, you know, right. collecting of the power right. song. Right, so it's another manifestation of, of the will to control. Mm -hmm. And the alternative is to trust. You know, like, yeah, I don't need to control the song. I don't need to keep it and write it down and contain it. Like, Capture can, the dolphin. Yeah, right. And the same thing, like you asked about relationships, you know. A lot of, in patriarchy, and I'm not using that as like some coded political posture that identifies me of a, of a certain side of this polarized debate, but like as, you know, a system based on the objectification and dehumanization of women and therefore of men. In patriarchy, your social well-being depends on controlling people, controlling their erotic lives, controlling their movements, controlling them economically and psychologically too. And if you don't have some kind of um, leverage on them then, then you're kind of insecure. Like, what if they leave? What if, what if, like, I, I need to have, you know, some kind of control over this person, rather than, you know, the, the alternative would be to trust. Well, so much going on right now. Trust the song line. If they're yeah. living from that, that's where they're to be, and you're living with that, then you know you're together for a reason. And like you began, you stay as long as that's right and good. Right. Not. Because it's comfortable or not because mm -hmm. it's powerful. Yeah. I mean, I'm just like, as I was going to say something like that, I thought, well, what about this and what about that? You know, and, and <laughs> you have a I'm yes like, and mind. Yeah. I'm like, not sure. Actually, and is this heart. really true or does it sound good? And, and so I kind of um, started stumbling about that. Uh, honestly, I don't really know what, you know, like, I mean, the stuff at Tamara, like, has a deep appeal to me. And the, the, I believe that humans have, are not naturally monogamous, you know, but then again, like there's a lot of beauty and possibility in 
a in like deep commitment. I mean, I'm in a deeply committed relationship with Stella, and but you know what? It's not even that. It's it's a weird thing. Like the commitment isn't something that I did on my own will. It seems it's something that I recognized, and I could pretend that it's not there, and where I could acknowledge that it's there. And I think maybe what looks like okay, he's made a commitment, isn't actually that I made the commitment. I did not make the commitment. I acknowledged that there is a commitment here, that there is a partnership. So again, it's being in service to something. It starts again with listening, not with the imposing of a control on the world. So that that way of, of seeing it encompasses these two polarities. It encompasses what we call polyamory or non-possessiveness or love without fear. And it also encompasses commitment as two facets of a larger thing, which comes down to um, humbling or listening to, to what is, what wants to be, and aligning with that rather than fighting that. I want to just say one more thing about your question about what's the world going to look like or what are the systems going to look like if we lived in some of the ways we're dreaming and speaking. And here again, I, I just am fine to say, I don't know. But I'm 100% committed and I'm curious. And I will go out living the best way I know to be connected to water, to earth, to fire, to air, to people, to injustice, to all the things you can laugh and say, oh yeah, that are politically correct. They're not politically correct. They're sanity. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh I value so much as an early teacher who used to just very very gently say, just slow down. You don't have to sit on a pillow for 24 hours. Just slow your walk down enough to breathe and take in and feel. And in my experience, if I do that, if we do that, you cannot help but care. Mm -hmm. You cannot help but see injustice and ask, not only what to say about it, but maybe what to do about it. You cannot help but know that water is life, and without it we die. And then see what we're doing and be in the inquiry of could we do it better. You know, and again, I know that there are people, and I'm very connected and work with Tamara on system change, and I also have to say that I as a community person, I also focus on the individual because it's like I couldn't, I couldn't save all the dolphins that were stranding or all the ones that were being slaughtered. But there were two dolphins in my path. And I could give my time and attention to releasing those two back to the wild so they could swim, as Orlin would say, I saw their destiny. Come on, are they meant to be in a pool? No. So they were in my path. I fell in love with them pretty quickly. 
And I kept thinking someone else would take care of it. And no one else was going to. So that's two dolphins. And I, I if I believe in anything, I believe in acupuncture. You know, and, mm-hmm. and so you get one cell working and then, you know, in the ripple effect. That's a water teaching. I don't know how it's going to turn out. And I don't know what it's all going to look like. But I have knowings of what's mine to do. And I live by those. And I support other people to listen deeply to theirs. And then you get a few of them together, and there's a quickening. You know, we hear a lot about the great turning. And right. I, I'm using the term the quickening because, man, I, as soon as I hurt my leg, I find a seagull with a hurt leg. Yeah. And ironically, almost paradoxically, like that kind of that kind of surrender to okay i'm not going to just i'm not going to try to change the whole world right now because here's a dolphin two dolphins that are right in front of my face right now and so she devotes how many years to getting those dolphins released two two years plus two years or more <laughs> to getting these dolphins released and it's just two dolphins you know and like my part of my rational mind's like what are you? I mean, she's such a talented person. She could have been changing. She could have been working on some system to release all the dolphins or to do all these other big things. And she spent all that time just on two dolphins. But then that story gets out there. People see that happening. And somehow, like, that's a landmark event in a consciousness shift that more and more, it's like not okay to, like, go to SeaWorld and look at dolphins being trotted through their routines, you know, like people are getting a little turned off by that. So it might be that the only way to change that system was to do exactly what you did. And and the idea of how do we change a system? Well, like, how do you how do you work on the systems level? Does anyone actually know how to change a system? Is it that you go into a conference room with all the other smart guys, usually they're guys, and you come up with the plan? And everyone has their own version of it, and the best plan wins. So you have to overcome everyone else's plan. And then finally, every smart guy agrees on the plan, and you unveil it to the world. Here's the plan, everybody. Here's how to change the system. And then everyone is going to be so bowled over by its brilliance that they're going to say, yes, yes, we're going to, to write a new law. We're going to... That's not how it works. It never works like that. You never even get past the stage of everyone in the small room agreeing with each other. It, that's, and I'm, this is coming from a guy who wrote a whole book on what an economic system would look like that's aligned with a story of interbeing. Like I said, I mean, it's not like I'm averse to, to you know, careful thinking and systems thinking. And like I went into like nitty gritty economics, you know, but I'm under no illusion. Maybe I was under the illusion then that like, but I'm not anymore under any illusion that that's how to change the system. I think that 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 whole theory of change is also a control-based theory. It's how can I overcome the world by force? You know, and it's like, well, if I had all the military at my command, then I could change the world. If I had, if I were at the top of the hierarchy, well, I'm not there, but at least I can maybe overcome people with intellectual force. So that's really coming from the same place as the, as the crisis is coming from. And so the alternative would be to say, okay, I am not powerful enough to change the world by force. I have to align with something 
and maybe this isn't quite the way that you see it, but, but I have to align with something that is powerful enough. I have to align with the thing that wants to be born with this larger intelligence that will tell me what completely irrational thing I'm supposed to do next. And I'm being coordinated by this intelligence to play the role that I'm supposed to play. And it operates lines of causality that are invisible to the control, the control-based mind that operate by morphic resonance, you know, that, that say that uh, any act of love or compassion or generosity strengthens the field of love, compassion, and generosity so that the same thing happens. I mean, you see it happening other places too. And you know that, that no act is wasted large or small. And sometimes it might be a big political thing that your care is calling you to do and that feels in service and right at the moment. And sometimes it might be something that's so invisible that no one will ever find out about it, not even the person you're in service to. So that's uh, great. That's back to the yes and mine too, because I'm even, you know, we work with Tamara, they have the plan, you know, and I don't have to make that wrong. I actually don't know. But I do know and agree with what you're talking about and would even add that when we have the plan for anything, we're activating resistance right away. And so what is in the way of us just saying the more people that can really be asking to live with the intention of interbeing and do-do-do-do-do, what will emerge from that? Mm -hmm. That... That becomes interesting. So I can remember years ago when the, we were doing the dolphin, I think the guy's name was Sam Labud that broke the, you know, thing about dolphins being slaughtered on the Mexican boats. And it was a beautiful, powerful thing he did and captured it on film and came to the Utney conference. And, you know, and everybody was like, oh, wow, this is what broke it. Mm -hmm. And this is what... Um, you know, woke people up. And I just, you know, at the end, I, I had to say to him and to others, well, how do you know it wasn't that monk in the cave that's been yeah. praying the last hundred years? That yep. we don't know. And that's why what the yes and, yeah, or like the, yes, yeah. the yes and mine. Like, I was on the street saying no. You know, I'm I'm still thankful there are people on the street saying no. And when I ask, I feel like the harder challenge for me is what am I saying yes to in this world and putting my attention there and daring to try even with all of the inequities and snafus um, to create the best of what I can. So... You know, that the, some of the guys are in the room working on the plan. Well, I'd rather they be there than on the football field. It's a funny thing what it's going to take. And I will stay in the seat of not knowing and really support and encourage people to go to that place of deeper inquiry. That's, that's what, at least in my lifetime, that's mm -hmm. what gives me hope when I see people in that place. It's when I see... Obama as president, it's not even about all of his policies and the difference between his policies and Trump. No, it's that he as a person listens 
you can see that he cares. You can see blah, 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 blah. And then we get right opposite him, Trump, who's the antithesis of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't even have to go to the policy level to say which person, if I'm going to put my, you know, I'm not going to put all my cards in any of either of those places, but if I'm going to vote, it's clear. So, yeah, I like hearing you talk about the guys making all their plans, because mm -hmm. I, stopped, I stopped talking about that a while ago. Yeah. It's not that it's necessarily a bad thing for guys to make plans, <laughs> but to put all our hopes in it, you know, and say yeah. that's how the world's going to change, not good enough. Right. Yeah. They're not powerful enough. They can do things that already fit into the into the zeitgeist, you know, like like we want to build a new airport, you know, like got to have guys in the room making their plans, their blueprints, their production schedules, you know, the budgets. Like it works for something that is already in the same direction as where the money and the power are going. But when we're trying to serve something that is not aligned with the direction of force in our culture, we need to access other powers. For example, the ability to be in just the right place at just the right time and have just the right encounter. If you have that, then you don't need as much money to make it happen. And I think it goes, again, you can feel maybe it's a trite thing to say, but I almost wish that there was a book of the trite things to say mm -hmm. and to have us reclaim them and mm -hmm. recognize the truth in them. So when we say, you know, what are we serving? Well, if one answer that's real is that we're serving life. But are we serving life for humans? Because that's where the imbalance comes in or came in. If we're... Mm -hmm serving and, and really listening to how all life is served, we wouldn't have built certain things there. We wouldn't have mined uranium on the aboriginal dreaming land for the whales, you know? Yeah. Um, so what does it look like to serve all of life? There's a lifetime journey. So in Sacred Economics, I wrote about how to align the money system with ecology I recognized then and even more now that, that there's a limit to that because our because economic rewards are quantitative. So they have to be based on quantifying something. And you could do that with like carbon credits or something, but there's a big problem then with equating ecological health with carbon credits. You get all kinds of terrible things. Biofuels plantations and nuclear power plants and big hydro dams that seem to make the numbers work. So I think that Ultimately, we have to, if you want to think in terms of rewards, we have to access a different system of values, not just value, and invoke the rewards that come from serving what you love. And how does that mesh with a quantitative economic system? Like, I don't think there's an easy answer to that. But I do know that money as an expression of what society values, I mean, ultimately, that's what money is or should be or wants to be. It's, it's one form of expression of, of what society values. 
like at least at least it needs to not be opposed to the things that we value as we come to value as modern society comes to value the health of the rest of life like you know money needs to stop rewarding its destruction and i mean i you know i proposed some ways to do that but i don't know if they're the right ways but at least that's a question we got to be thinking about but i don't think that ultimately the only answer would be a, a a reduction of the monetized realm maybe not its elimination but certainly a reclaiming of a lot of parts of life from money and from quantification in general that has to happen there may be still a realm that's left that is and should be quantitative the the playing with numbers playing with categories and symbols and that but that has encroached upon other realms and blinded us to seeing things that that can't be quantified that are qualitative that are immeasurable that are sacred you know like that's what we need to be paying more attention to so i I'm, i don't think that yeah monetary reforms are going to save us but they're, they're necessary but they're not sufficient at all I guess the place that I relate a little bit to the question of, you know, what happens to a world where, you know, things are rewarded that um, seem very negative towards life. To me, what's under that is why do people, what do people determine as a reward? You know, a lot of people um, don't really go to the reward of having a life at all until they're in some crisis. So I think recently of the fires and the mudslides in Southern California and knowing the people there very well and having spent a lot of my life there and watching the different responses and seeing so many of the people um, actually say, I'm just so happy to have my family. Mm -hmm. You know, so what will it take for people to know that does it take cancer does it take a mudslide taking your house um, does it take a nuclear war uh, i offer people a ceremonial way to face death and be with death because i feel that that's a gateway to really <coughs> understanding and experiencing the value of life mm -hmm. without that I can be sad about the rewards that people are choosing, and I can be angry about it. Who doth that serve? Yeah. It's not like they're choosing it because they're bad. No. They're choosing it. I can say one of the reasons, and I do never say every, but one of the reasons is they haven't had a rites of passage. They haven't faced death, and so yeah. many are living in fear of death, and building the security, whether it's through the wall at the border or through their money in a gated community. A person that has really faced death through illness or through crisis or through sensitivity lives with a kind of freedom that I would want every person to live with. And I have spent time with some of the wealthiest people and they do not have that freedom. They have so much money, but they still live in fear of losing it. 
where someone that knows how to grow their own food and knows that they will, like, I've worked so many different jobs in my life. I mean, I can't imagine I wouldn't be able to take care of myself. And I even got tested on that, like right now with this injury or with a brain tumor. No, I couldn't take care of myself. What if I didn't have my eyesight return? So even then, my security was in my relations more than it was in the money to pay for the surgery. Yep. Those people who are have a lot of money and are afraid of losing their wealth are not actually wealthy. Wealthy is to feel at home here. And to belong. And, and this is like if we were going to list the, the big ailments in the world and in ourselves and in people, you know, it's not feeling seen, not feeling heard, not belonging. Mm-hmm. And, and whether that's if you're a white settler or if you're an African-American or a Native American, you know, this is a common, and our common ground is the earth. We all belong. So to offer people an opportunity where they can have an experience of belonging, this is, brings me back to the water. Because ironically, I people think, oh, I'm such an earth person, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, this is a Charles where I'll tell you, I felt so alienated from this earth. I felt someone had dropped me off on the wrong planet. And I wanted to leave. I really considered suicide deeply and the connection through water is really where I first felt belonging and I I feel that's back to the womb but I feel it's also that we're a water planet and I can't like intellectualize it I just know I experienced it and so I lure people into the water you know um I think dolphins are the creatures they are in part, and people are like, oh, a dolphin, and yes, it has a more intelligent brain, and, and all of this and that, and oh, let me swim with them. And, and I say, they're just luring you into the water. And if they get, they keep getting people farther out into the water, and then people are in that, oh my God, they're in that unknown. I can remember the first young woman I took out there, and she had a total panic attack. And that was her gateway to not controlling, mm-hmm. to death. Oh my God, I'm going to die out here. And then slowly, keep breathing, keep breathing. No, you're at home out here. You can be at home without boundaries, without borders, without control. So I'll share a few quickies of why I give attention to water and why I feel at this time in our history to give attention to water really serves is that one it's taking us to the root it's literally our common ground we're a water planet we always talk about earth (laughs) so that's one without water it we all meet it we all share it another is that i have listened and and asked for people's stories about water for years and almost every person goes to their childhood and they have a water story that is where there's magic connection love 
So I feel water and, uh, oh man, I could go on, but I feel water brings us to that primal relationship of belonging and of connecting. And I can say that I've worked in my life in different conflict areas and been part of invited into creating counsel of attempting to listen to each other and heal differences and you know and years ago I spent time in citizen diplomacy in the Soviet Union and you know a number of trips to Israel and we I was at like five coexistence projects which were the best projects people were learning each other's languages and learning each other's songs and it was beautiful and there was a little seed of hope there but I have to say after a month I actually felt despair and so at that time I went across the border and I went into the Sinai and I decided to fast there for I think it was three days with water and just asking and praying you know what will serve here to be part of the healing? The answer, now granted, that's all I had out there was water, but the answer was the same as the first time I ever went to the desert and just begged to give me some guidance. And the answer was focus on the water. And if you go and look, if I go and look since that time, which was like 35 years ago, I go and look at crisis areas like what's happening in Syria, what's happening in these different places, um, you keep going underneath the tribal conflicts or the fight over resources. At the bottom of it all is water and land and home. And so to focus on caring for the water together, and without the water, none of us live, that just seems like a um, pretty good focus at least for me. I would echo that on a completely different level. You know, I've just finished writing a book on climate change. And one of the conclusions I came to is that if we focus on any substance in the world, it should not be carbon. It should be water. That climate science has consistently underestimated the role of water in maintaining a healthy biosphere. And that if we, even if we cut carbon emissions and methane, et cetera, et cetera, to zero, but we continue destroying the ecosystems that maintain the hydrological cycle, then we're still doomed. Actually, being doomed isn't the worst outcome. The worst outcome is that we survive on a concrete world, a ruined planet that we still have you know algae pools and synthetic food and we, and virtual environments and we still survive but the second worst outcome might be human extinction and to really that the choice in front of us is to it's not how do we more cleverly manipulate the resources here so that we can survive the, the that's not the initiation that this encounter with death is posing for us, because it is an initiation. The ecological crisis that we're calling climate change is an initiation. It's, a, it's coming face to face with 
our collective death, our death as a civilization. The actual risk, that's totally debatable. I mean, a lot of these initiation rites of passage are designed to actually be a little dangerous, but not as dangerous as they seem, or not as, you know, you'll probably get through it okay. Although Maladoma Some says that, that there actually has to be a risk for them to be effective. Um, otherwise, you can dismiss them as you know, just a ritual. Anyway, so yeah, so civilization going through this rite of passage, the, the initiation, what we're being initiated into is the choice, not how to serve ourselves more effectively, but how to serve life, how to become part of the whole tribe of life on earth. And at the foundation of life, the molecule, if not the atom, the molecule, the foundation of life is water. And so practically speaking, when like a lot of the things that we blame on climate change are actually caused by disruptions of water, of like, for example, deforestation and monocrop farming, cultivation of land, all these things prevent water from, from being held, from really soaking in, from replenishing the underground aquifers that then come up as springs maybe decades later to when they're ready to, to go to the ocean that feed the the trees that water the trees through the dry season so that they can maintain a moisture environment that transports heat up to the cloud layer that then reflects sunlight that brings water up that condenses forming low pressure zones that pull water in from the sea that maintain the exchange and the the erotic flow between land and, and ocean like all of these functions when you disrupt them then you get droughts the, there's if you cut down all the trees and the soil washes away because there's no roots, no mycelial network to hold it, then then the the, the trees aren't transpiring water. The rainy season becomes much shorter and more more intense. Then you have droughts or you have flooding when when the land is denuded and baked and creating high pressure and paved over and and, and these like temperatures over denuded land can be like 20, 30, 40 degrees higher than forested land in the same, you know, latitude, the same, like right next to each other. So to, so anyway, if you want to say, okay, well, how do we maintain the health of ecosystems? Like what's the one principle? It comes down to like, the, if you want to focus on one thing, which I'm not sure if you do, but if you do, God forbid, if you want to pick one thing, it should be water. That's what unites. How do you, like the, the, the principles, how do you care for, how do you regenerate land with agriculture? With, how do you regenerate it with, with herd animals or with forests or with um, wetlands? Like all these things come down to the water. So I'm, yeah, maybe this is just another one, one little facet of a much larger turning to reverence for, for life and underneath it to water. But just from like the climate perspective, we're going to need to turn more to water. And just as a closing comment to say uh, yes and again, because I love the um, truth of when we really give attention to one thing in the circle of life, then if we give too much attention, the other thing starts to, you know, raise its head and walking with water for three years um, each week we walked um, every time there was a fire 
And now, of course, we're living through these fires here. And the people that survived the, the fire down in Santa Barbara and were just like, oh, thank goodness, then the water came. And they lost actually so much more through mm -hmm. the mud and the water. So I just want to close with also honoring the all the elements and all of nature and really listening to where we give our attention, like even within ourselves at different times in our life. And I know that, you know, I started hurting myself when I was in my 20s because I was into the power of going up a mountain and all that, you know, fire energy, Sagittarian and woman climbing. And um, I just kept hurting myself. And the message was, go to the water, you know, go to that feminine and find the power uh, in a different way. And um, so that was what I needed to do. And yet I can say other people that are kind of watering themselves constantly in the Hawaiian Islands, God bless them, you know, now the fire's coming to them. You know, now they're going up that mountain to stop mm -hmm. the military putting a thing. It's the wholeness of the mm -hmm. story. And I think my love of the dolphin legend was because Peter Shenstone, a man from Australia nonetheless, which was supposed to be even worse with sexism than our own country, was one of the first people that I heard really speak of oceanic consciousness, the mm -hmm. feminine, giving the attention to water. And so, you know, what's next? Um, Hopefully all of it, the yes and heart mind yeah. and the listening for where our individual attention needs to be, where our cultural attention needs to be. Because there's certainly people um, of color and indigenous people and others in this world that maybe don't need to give attention in the way that we do as Western people to where we have really mm -hmm. fallen off the mark. And I, my prayers for the wholeness is they give attention to their story and their ritual. And we, as white privileged people, give attention to our gifts, our story, and support others as then oh, there's just a chance for a more whole world connected to life for all beings. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, yeah, it's important not to say, okay, so here's our, here's the new one thing, but in the current context, I mean, our civilization, modern, especially modern technology is really driven by fire. It's driven by petroleum, by, um, I mean, even going back a couple thousand years, metallurgy, like everything that we know of as technology, um, ceramics, um, electronics, uh, the combustion engine, all these things are fire-based. They're, they're, they're about burning something. So for the technological culture that dominates a lot of the planet, you know, maybe it would be a uh, salutary shift of attention to go more towards water until it's no longer time to do that. And I, I've told you about the box. I, I, I want to give you one oh, yeah. um, because one of the big passages in there is around the misuse of fire. Mm 
mm-hmm. and and how that turned us in our story. And one of the things that I guess I find hope in and being around rituals in the last years mm-hmm. is seeing that um, we're gathered around the water as well as the fire. I see so many people now um, really incorporating water more into the rituals, and I think that's because mm-hmm. we're listening, mm-hmm. or they're listening um, to what you're talking about and to looking at our historical relationship um, to power Mm-hmm. And to the the might of fire, yeah, and um, just to remember the might of water, in its gentleness, as it can, um, I think, as John said, you know, carve out a whole new territory. Mm-hmm. So my prayer is that our words are part of carving out and also holding and releasing old and new stories that serve life. This has been a new and ancient story with your host, Charles Eisenstein. I offer this podcast in the spirit of the gift, by which I mean that I don't withhold premium content for a price or put up paywalls or do affiliate marketing or have advertising or anything like that. Instead, I rely on supporters like you. If you would like to support it, you can subscribe at charleseisenstein.net for a small monthly amount, or you can subscribe for free as well. Either way, you get the same content, everything's the same, and you'll be notified every time a new podcast comes out. Also on the site, you can find archived episodes along with everything else that I produce, essays, books, videos, online courses. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll be with you again next time.